Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. And that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. So it is my pleasure to welcome onto the G Word podcast today, Tamsin Berry, who has done a wide range of roles across government and industry, all to do with life sciences uh, in this country. Tamsin, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much for having me. It's very exciting to be here. So you have been the director of the Office of Life Sciences. You've worked in lots of other policy roles um, in government. You've worked in high pressure roles during the pandemic, and you're now a life sciences investor. Give us a sense of how you got into this whole world. I'm going to have to give you the honest answer. I kind of stumbled into life sciences. I would have been very surprised age 16 if somebody would have said that you will find the most interesting job in your life in life sciences policy. So the truth is that I was in Public Health England working on some really interesting stuff like dementia and uh, obesity and troubled families and social care and healthcare integration. And I had this wonderful boss who moved over to the Office for Life Sciences. And he said, there's lots of roles. Why don't you come and join me? And he was such an inspirational guy to work for. I said, yeah, sure. Not really knowing what I was going off to do. And uh, well, the sort of the rest is the past uh, eight years of my life, really. I've got into life sciences and it's such a complex arena with one sort of really good goal of treating people and making people's lives better, which sounds totally corny, I realise, that it's kind of got me hooked. There is always a nook or cranny of the life sciences scene that I don't know anything about so there's always something to learn about I love the fact that you can be deeply curious in life sciences and find out loads of cool stuff so that's how I kind of got into it through a friend and stayed because I learned to love it awesome so you came for the chat you stayed for the impact <laughs> <It's>, uh... <laughs> exactly <laughs> that's a very good way of putting it um, so hopefully I am making an impact. Um, some days I feel like I am, and some days uh, not so much. So you mentioned the Office for Life Sciences. What is that? What does it do? Why does it exist? It exists because in the UK we have a healthcare system which is the primary purchaser of the life sciences goods and services. We have a great life sciences sector in the UK, but in order for it to keep it going and to feed it, we also need to use its products and services. And we have on the other side of the equation, the NHS, which is our much loved institution that is cash strapped and finds it difficult to procure new innovations. But the paradox is that if it doesn't procure and use these new innovations, it probably won't be able to sustain itself. So you have this kind of wicked conundrum of 
how do you feed the NHS with innovation and keep it sustainable and keep all of that affordable? And how do you grow and sustain a life sciences industry that is going to be able to provide you with those innovations to keep your NHS sustainable? And so the Office for Life Sciences was set up way before I joined, I think I'm going to say 2011. It started as a as a sector team and a sector team is something in the Department of Business, which looks specifically after that sector and tries to make sure that there are policies in place to grow that sector. And then it got made a joint unit in 2014, I think, under George Freeman, specifically to have a better balance between this conundrum between the NHS and the industry. And quite often people sort of say, you know, the health of the nation and the wealth of the nation are very connected. And we used to say that a lot because, you know, the industry mattered to the NHS and the NHS mattered to the industry. So when I was in OLS, the role was to walk that tightrope and try and balance the interests of both those parties in a positive way so that they were symbiotic. Got it. And that work came together in the first uh, industrial strategy for the life sciences sector. I guess strategy is about choices and priorities, ultimately. Like, what were the big questions that the strategy tried to address and what kind of choices did it make? The life sciences strategy, basically what it did, it just looked at the UK and said, what's great about the UK? What are all our strengths? And what's not so good about the UK? What are all our weak weaknesses? And then, as you said, we looked at the choices that we could make. So, you know, some really obvious stuff. Our selling point is our science base. We've had great universities that have been around since like the 1500s. We've got huge academic prowess for such a small nation. We have the NHS. Like it's the envy of the world, a 60 million patient single payer system, which in theory means that we have a lot of aggregated data. We have a large market. It's an exciting place or it should be an exciting place to do business. We have an amazing regulator um, that before Brexit had a very prominent role in the European medicines agency and now after brexit is starting to market itself as a very innovative regulator that can provide a runway into the larger markets with the fda and the ema so there are all these strengths that we that we were looking at and saying how can we iterate these things and and make them better and double down on on our um, science base by feeding bits of the r d supply chain and then how can we actually pinpoint the things that aren't working so well and like access to innovations um, and working with the NHS as an innovation partner and helping the NHS to embrace innovation more? How can we create policies and processes around that? So we put a bunch of recommendations together in the industrial strategy. We definitely didn't want to do it all ourselves. So we bought an industry to hear what they felt we needed to do. And we co-created a policy document to make all this happen. But the strategy was just the beginning. We had a shared vision with industry and with government. It was an enabler to go and get money from the treasury to actually make stuff happen. And it was making the stuff happen that I really think bedded down the strategy for the UK. Yeah, so so making stuff happen, 
the, I guess the question for any strategy over time is like, how do we know if this is working? And you, you talked earlier about impact and making people's lives better and the health and wealth of the nation. For, of the vision that was laid out in the life sciences strategy, what are the bits that have kind of got traction? What are the bits where you think we still need to keep pushing? The bits that I think got a lot of traction for reasons that we can go into were we, we created a lot of good science and data initiatives. They were, they were good projects to uh, announce and to win investment into the UK, which was part of the strategy. We wanted to grow the sector. So if I look back at some of the things that we, we've done to attract companies to the UK and grow the R&D agenda, so the whole genome sequencing of Biobank, um, we got whole genome sequencing of the cancer genomes for Genomics England, we did a digital pathology and radiology program, we did something called Our Future Health, which is a longitudinal cohort of 5 million um, people. We did lots of science initiatives. I think time will tell whether they give rise to the sort of R&D in science that we predicted at the time. And, you know, I've definitely got some way to go on that. And I hope that OLS track and monitor the output of those initiatives. Then we also did things that actually won investment at the time. So, you know, we Merck committed to come building a new discovery centre in King's Cross. Uh, UCB expanded their R&D footprint in their offices in Slough. And so they were immediate things that we could see that we'd made a difference and we'd, we'd got in, inward investment. So that was very exciting. And then some of the things that we did with the NHS to kind of open up the, the way that the NHS was willing to work with industry was really exciting. So they did the Inclisaran deal with Novartis. They did the deal with the Grail for the Galleria trial. And we're just starting to see a new mindset coming out of the way in which the NHS and industry can work together, which I find really exciting because some of the problems that we need to solve in life sciences are way bigger than one individual institution. So to sort of start to see that innovation partnership is really exciting. And I'm sure there's so many other things that... I'm forgetting. Um, it was a while ago that uh, we did the strategy and my memory's not all that good. But I think we did a lot of things and the uh, OLS, or at least OLS did, had it when I was there, uh, had a kind of like a landscape survey that we did. It tracks how we are and our, how competitive we are compared to other countries. So, you know, if we don't start, if we don't see the fruits of our labor coming through in indexes like that, we'll know that we haven't done a good job. But um, anecdotally, I know that there was a lot of, a lot of success. No, that's great. And so I think those kind of indices are really important. I guess that I'm trying to humanize it in my mind and say, right, if we're a family in Leicester or Exeter or Liverpool, you know, what, what difference does this make? And I guess that the point about investment into the UK, things like the Merck uh, Centre, new, new companies growing, you know, partly that's, you know, maybe my cousin has got a job with AstraZeneca or Merck or something. And, you know, we start to see jobs being created. Maybe when I go to the doctors, there's a new test, there's a new drug, maybe something that previously was a condition that wasn't treatable now there's a new drug for it. What what else could we 
kind of look for in people's daily lives that would say this this is moving things forward i think it's all those things like you say it's it's jobs it's access to the latest cutting edge treatments it's access to treatments through clinical trials that perhaps aren't on the market yet that are actually going to be really impactful for you on a personal level for a condition that you might have that you want access to the latest research it's also i think looking at covid i think having a strong life sciences sector in the UK stood us in really good stead. I mean, there's the obvious one around AZ and the vaccine, but also there's the leverage it gave us in the whole pandemic to be able to access treatments. Um, If you look at the recovery trial, the fact that that was done here, it gave us answers to clinical questions, which helped our patients first. I mean, having a strong life sciences sector has these benefits that I don't think are immediately seeable for most people, but um, they help make our NHS stronger, they help make our treatments better, you know, they help make our job scene better, um, all of those things. And I guess for anyone who had COVID really seriously through the pandemic and was treated on dexamethasone or baricitinib or the other uh, treatments that were identified through all of that science and clinical work, and suddenly you can breathe, whereas before you couldn't breathe. I guess that's like the ultimate moment when these things really become human. We've talked about the interface between kind of government, the NHS and the biotech and pharma sectors. There's been a lot of discussion, debate, some controversy around, you know, how we use healthcare data for research in this country and elsewhere. Maybe if we go back to fundamentals, why do we need to engage with big pharma companies on these kind of agendas, you know, the stereotype is, oh, they're just hugely profitable. They're just kind of taking advantage of healthcare systems. You know, can't we just do these things in the NHS or with, you know, academic partners? Why why do we need the life sciences industry? Well, I mean, uh, this is, there's is lots in that question. Um, I'm not going to, I think, defend every every bit of the industry and say that it's all perfect. No, no industry is perfect. And there are plenty of things which are wrong about the industry and lots of us continually trying to improve and change. And we can talk about some of those things later. But, you know, the big realization for me working in life sciences is if we didn't have industry to translate this amazing science that comes out of academic institutions into usable products, then we wouldn't be able to benefit as individuals. And so I think it's right and proper that we pay and reimburse industry for this innovation, the innovations and the products and services that they create. Is it right and proper that sometimes it feels like there's excessive profiteering Probably not. And we can get into some of the dynamics around that. I think as a, as a civil servant, I always had the view that industry perhaps had an easier ride. Now I'm on the other side and I'm on the industry side of the table. I realize it's just not that black and white. It's so gray. I mean, industry has its own dynamics and challenges that it needs to respond to. And it, don't think I was fully cognizant of all of those when I was a civil servant. But I was just so very aware as a civil servant that without industry, we wouldn't have any of these things. I mean, if you look at the partnerships between people who invent the stuff, and then it's 
industry who bring that stuff to market and it's a long and arduous journey and so they should be applauded for doing that I think does that answer your question there was lots in your question I, I seem to remember I think it does I think it's that point about taking ideas and initial proof points I guess from academia and then translating them into actual scale treatments I, I guess to some extent we mentioned earlier the Oxford AstraZeneca uh, vaccine in the pandemic that's maybe the ultimate example of that right the team in oxford have been working on vaccines for a long time including flu vaccines and you know uh, respiratory disease vaccines and suddenly the pandemic hits actually that partnership between academia and a company like astrazeneca that can you know manufacture distribute test ensure the reliability of um, and kind of get the vaccines out there and i think it's not just the millions but actually the billions of doses right is a completely different thing. Completely different. AstraZeneca had the infrastructure in place to take that thing and overnight produce it, mass produce it. I mean, they didn't have quite enough infrastructure and they were really hard to expand their footprint in order to be able to vaccinate the world. But there's no way that Oxford could have done that on their own, which is why, I mean, the debate, I don't want to get into the debate about the TRIPS waiver for the vaccine, but that's why I always found that quite an interesting question how you it's not just about taking the IP and the product the making and the delivering and that whole infrastructure is a massive enterprise that needs to be tightly regulated for quality control and to think that that is a simple thing to do is 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 slightly naive yeah no as someone who's tried to make kind of a hundred batches of even something like hot dogs for a big kid's party, <laughs> trying, to do, <laughs> trying to do that reliably and consistency. It's, it's tough enough. Um, no, hats, hats off um, to those people. And so we're kind of circling around this, this theme of bringing together the best bits of academia, biotech and pharma for large scale benefit for people. Tell us a bit about the mission of your um, you know, in your current role at Population Health? Like, how do we best bring those pieces together to have impact at scale? Population Health Partners focuses on the big global burdens of disease. Um, we have looked at the market trends over the past 20 years, and we have noticed that whilst the common killers remain the same, what has happened in the life sciences industry for various reasons, the number of products that are coming through the pipeline, they have gone up in cost and they have reduced the number of patients that they treat. So the population served is decreasing and the price of the medicine is increasing. So why is that? Mostly that's because the industry has started to make products for much smaller categories of disease. So mostly cancers, mostly immunotherapies, probably because the science took them in that direction, probably also because regulation took them in that direction and the cost of clinical trials for these large scale diseases where you have to run trials for many thousands of patients just got too much. I mean, it takes one, everyone knows this fact, but it takes one to three billion to bring a drug to market, which is a huge sum of money. And if you think that you are using 
giant company reserves, which your shareholders wouldn't let you do, or you're using pension money to do that, the risk associated with a large scale failure is quite often too high. So the industry has moved into much niche disease categories. And as a result, innovations for these large scale diseases, which kill most people, so diabetes, um, heart disease, dementia, asthma, respiratory, those those disease categories are seeing far fewer innovations coming down the pipe. And we want to be uh, kind of countercultural in a way and reverse this trend. We want to try and improve innovations uh, for these large scale diseases, the ones that kill most people. But we believe we can do it because we think that we need to bring changes in the clinical development process. Uh, we need to make it more efficient. We need to make it less risky and less costly so that it's easier for people to come in and invest in these large scale innovations. I guess it's one of those things which sounds almost obvious, right? Why would we not want more and better uh, treatments for these conditions that kill the most people, right? Where's the next kind of statins or cheap, affordable intervention that makes a, a big difference to the lives of a huge number of people? What do you think, I guess, are some of the underlying forces that have led to that kind of specialization into, you know, small and um, but very expensive treatments? And what can an organization like Population Health Partners do to, I guess, either address some of those root causes or just kind of, I don't know if you just say, right, we're just going to ignore them. We're just going to do this thing ourselves, even if those, those root causes are still kind of uh, bubbling away. I'm going to give you the high, high level, what I believe the high level causes to be, but there's so many undercurrent dynamics as well. But I think mostly it's driven by risk, cost and time. I mean, it is harder to bring these large in, in indications to market. It costs a lot more money compared to the small indications and therefore the risk is much, much greater. So if you are an investor and you are looking to make money, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you go to the diseases where you can make money faster, the risk is lower, you don't have to spend so much on the development? And I think that you know that has driven people to go to the, I'm not sure a lower hanging fruit is the right term, but I'll use it just for now. It's, it's an easier market to operate in. And um, there have been some regulatory changes which have supported that. And I think, you know, some, the, sci the science has supported those disease categories as well. It's not entirely down to the economics of the situation. But I think the economics of the situation has been a big driver. So when you look at that and you say, well, how can we change the economics, but make sure that the economics still work? We have said at Population Health Partners, you absolutely have to create more efficiencies in the whole innovation cycle and that's a few key things first of all you actually need to make products that healthcare systems want and i know that sounds incredibly simple and almost trite but if i when i was in government i got lobbied a lot by companies that had a widget that did very little had a very small incremental benefit and they were absolutely aghast as to why the government didn't want to buy it i mean you know like i said earlier the nhs has a limited amount of money 
and it needs to spend its money wisely. So it's not going to spend its money on something that has a very, very minor benefit. It's got to reserve its cash for something more important. So I genuinely think that if we are making innovations that treat some of these big problems that the healthcare systems really care about and really need treated, then there'll be a lot more pull through on the innovation uh, cycle. Um, the second thing that's really important is that we bring down the cost of clinical trials and we bring down the cost of development so that it is far less of a financial risk for um, investors. And, you know, there are lots of exciting things happening in this space and the UK is pretty much at the forefront along, along with some other places in this agenda around using routinely collected data to um, drive down the cost of clinical trials so that these sorts of innovations can be bought to market. And if they're going to be bought to market cheaper, then they should be cheap for the healthcare system. And if the market is so big, the volume of products that are going to be needed is going to be big. So it's not, and it shouldn't be about, this is the third thing, it should not be about maximizing the price to the point that the health system is broken. It should be about saying how many patients need to be treated, what is the budget available, can we make this product for this price? And making the product for this price means can we develop it cost effectively, can we get the cost of goods down effectively? And then the fourth thing I think that really helps bring these innovations in is when payers engage and industry and payers engage together and they kind of create a partnership of co-creation. My business partner always reminds me that, you know, when you're building a submarine, what the Ministry of Defence does not do is wait until the submarine is bought to go to a submarine show and pick out the best submarine. It goes to the submarine maker and it says, I want these things in this submarine and it's going to cost you three billion to make, but I will work with you. So at the end, when you built the submarine, we'll buy the submarine off you. I don't see why medicines should be so different when it's so costly to develop them and the ultimate benefit to society should be great. So seeing that partnership, that's the fourth thing. And I think that's really important. Very cool. It's, it sounds almost sort of so obvious when you put it like that right like why why do you think that's it's, not happening <laughs> well i think it's obviously easier to say uh, than do the whole time it requires some change it requires the change in mindset between kind of the payers and industry and they need to work together and that's something that i saw so much in delivering the life sciences strategy all of the projects we did were public private partnerships and you can make them work but they're hard they're hard work um so that needs to change we need to do more of those things and there needs to be more trust between the parties and hopefully that will grow over time um it can be complicated i think the inflection point in clinical trials will come from um access to data it will come through better computing it, it will come through the use of technology which we just didn't have before I mean if I talk to some of my um, business partners they remind me that you know clinical trials used to be done on clipboards well they're not anymore and we we've come a long way from the days of a clipboard and 
you know, all, all having to be hospital-based trials. We've got wearables, we can do sightless trials, we've got advances in data and loads of companies are doing that. And I'm absolutely convinced that in five or six years time, there'll be a lot of streamlining and, and we'll have really good processes in this in this space. I think the other thing that we need to do is just start using some of these technologies that we've been using for, for rare and niche, like rare diseases and cancers and start seeing what their applications are for some of these uh, more common conditions. Uh, and that, that will happen as the scientific technologies mature as well. So I think there's, you know, these are, these are reasons and why we should see changes happening um, that weren't possible before. And fi final question, these are topics which affect you know, we've touched on the health and wealth of the nation. We've touched on these kind of moments of life crisis, like if you're really sick, is there a drug that can treat you? At the level of these kind of big strategies, like the, the life sciences strategy, these big investments like population health partners are making in trying to change the way that drugs come to market and so on. How can we in, involve or hear the voices of like citizens, patients, clinical trial participants in inputting into these decisions that are for their benefit right how can we better think about engaging with you know i guess we might say citizens in these areas i think it's really important that patients and how they use the medicine and what it means for them to take the medicine and what it's like in real life really matter and some of the biggest problems that we found, look at statins, for example, we know that people stop taking their statins after three or four years, which is why we still have a problem with heart disease and statins. I mean, it's not the only reason why we have a problem with heart disease, but statins are a great drug and people stop taking them and therefore their outcomes are poorer as a result. So looking at how convenient a drug is and what it is like for the individual to take it, I think is a really important part of drug development. And I think that's why it's important to think about how a drug will be used in situ and getting the evidence around how it will be used in situ and factoring that in early on into um, your development plan so that you you ultimately make a drug that is convenient for both the healthcare system and patients is where you have the winning combo. So if we did some research early up front that found out that patients wanted a blue pill rather than a pink pill, it's easy for us to make that change up front. It's really hard for us to make that change when the drug's already on the market. So the more that people can think about the end user and the healthcare system and the utility of a product, I think the better. And we should do more of it. It's always intrigued me why life sciences is less marketing focused than some of the other disciplines that I've worked in. We have said it before about the submarine, you know, most marketeers will say, start with your customer and work back. And we should do that in life sciences too. And our customers are the healthcare systems and our customers are the patients. And if we can make sure that we can be making products that work for both the system and the patient, then that's a winning formula. I, I said that that was my final question, but I'm going to ask you one more, which is that um, we, one of the, 
original reasons for putting this podcast together was to have what we loosely talk about as a national conversation as genomics comes more into the mainstream of um, of healthcare, of technology and so on. Um, who should we, what kind of voices, either individuals or kind of thematically, do you think we should be hearing as we have that conversation? Who should we be getting onto the pod? For me, one of the exciting things I think about genomic data is this potential around risk prediction and disease identification. So the disease identification bit I, is the here and now. And the more we are doing um, when we are identifying genetic variants that give rise to certain diseases, and obviously that's the whole raison d'etre of uh, genomic Genomics England, um, that's hugely exciting and you can see the benefits for patients immediately. As this field grows over five to 10 years and we see genomic risk prediction becoming a real validated technology, that is very exciting for me and it completely changes the paradigm of healthcare, I think. To be able to say, based on my genetics and some other phenotypic characteristics, here are the disease risks for me as an individual which I can choose to do something about or I can choose to ignore. And I, I'm not sure that just telling people what their disease risks are is 100% of the answer, but it's definitely some of the answer in terms of giving a sense of what I need to worry and watch out for for my health if I'm going to take control of my health or if I'm going to take control of my children's health. So this this paradigm shift is is hugely interesting and exciting to me but because it's a paradigm shift it requires a healthcare shift a health system shift so i would i would talk to some of the people who are going to be able to reorientate the healthcare system which we all know is is like an oil tanker it takes a long time for change to happen in the nhs so to talk to some of their health system leaders and find out how prepared they are for this shift in uh, risk prediction and, and genetic technologies coming out of the specific disease-specific diagnostics and into this realm of risk prediction, I think is really fascinating. Uh, yeah, go and talk to some healthcare system leaders because I think the change that genomics is going to bring over the next 10 years is going to be huge and I'm very interested to hear how they're going to embrace it and get ahead of the curve rather than sticking their heads in the sand. Perfect. Sold. Tamsin, thanks so much for making the time to be on the pod. All right. Thanks, Chris. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to the G word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series. I'd appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word.